people came to the Harrogate Hotel to rest, rejuvenate. The Hydro, as it was known, was a lush oasis in Yorkshire for well-heeled Brits to relax in the hotel's Turkish baths. That's exactly what Ms. Teresa Neal was doing in mid-December 1926. While checking into the hotel on a Saturday, she explained with a tired smile she'd traveled quite some way up from South Africa. Finally, her holiday could begin. For over a week, Ms. Neal went about her business at a leisurely pace, reading the Daily Mail and the Times in the lobby, eating meals with other vacationers in the dining room, and listening to the band perform in the evenings. But on December 14th, a call came for Ms. Neal. She had visitors. Two men had arrived looking hurried and worried. One was her husband, and the other was a policeman. The woman who called herself Ms. Neal didn't greet them with excitement. Her eyes glazed over, offering nothing to indicate she recognized either of them. Though she agreed to check out and go with the men, she remained stoic all the way back to London. Even as she stepped off the train onto a crowded platform at King's Cross, no one could tell what she was thinking. And despite her husband's best efforts to shield her, excited witnesses pressed the couple. They shouted and jeered, asking questions. What happened? Why had she left? Agatha Christie never responded. She left her adoring fans and the public to wonder why she disappeared into the dead of night and traveled across England under a fake name. In her silence, many reached the same conclusion. Perhaps Agatha never wanted to be found. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our one-part episode on the disappearance of Agatha Christie. The novelist's mysterious and brief retreat from society in 1926 led many to believe her disappearance stemmed from something serious. But whether that cause was traumatic or vindictive remains up for debate. So today, we'll investigate how one of England's most renowned authors managed to slip away and fly under the radar for over a week. Then, we'll examine two of the most popular theories about what caused Agatha to disappear. Perhaps her exit was an elaborate ruse to expose her husband's affair and publicly humiliate him. Others remain convinced Agatha experienced a dissociative fugue state, a deep amnesia that can overtake a person when they're extremely stressed. This may mean, by the time she was found, even Agatha didn't know what pushed her to abandon her car and slip into anonymity 
for nearly two weeks. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Maybelline New York. Get ready to bring the heat with Maybelline's newest lip plumping gloss, Lifter Plump. Fair warning, though, it's hot. Like, literally. It's formulated with chili peppers to bring a heated sensation and an instant plumping effect that lasts. Available in eight sizzling shades like Blush Blaze, Hot Honey, and more. Buy Lifter Plump now on Amazon and use the code 10PLUMP to get 10% off for a limited time. Tap the banner to learn more. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the dim. It go down. It go down in the dim. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-patrollable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Welcome to the Pants Cast, brought to you by Lululemon, a show about all things pants. My guest is Matt James, former NCAA player and Lululemon ABC pant enthusiast. Hi, great to be here. Matt, tell us all about those ABC pants. The comfort? They're like the pants I put on when I don't want to wear pants. Versatility? You could wear these pants to a wedding, but you could also wear these to a cookout. And what about style? They're like, if casual and cool, had a baby. Well, it's clear why you're an ABC enthusiast. Pleasure having you and your pants on the show. Thanks for having us. Find the shockingly comfortable ABC pants at lululemon.com. The power of memory is something we, as humans, are fascinated with. We study it in labs, write movies and books about it, and of course, we try to bottle the essence of it in our daily lives. It doesn't matter whether it's in a scrapbook or on Instagram, in handwritten diaries or on blogs. We chronicle life as we live it, in order to remember what will eventually become foggy. As psychologists James Lampinen and Denise Beike explained, memory is incredibly special to humanity because it's how we retrieve and re-experience the past in the present. At its core, human memory can be divided into three different buckets, episodic, semantic, and procedural. Episodic means recalling our past experiences. Think of this as the highlight reel of your last birthday party. On the other hand, semantic memory is rooted in facts and dates. It's often associated with very black and white concepts, dates, math, the weather, and procedural memory rounds everything out, sort of like muscle memory. It's how we keep using learned skills like driving a car or brushing our teeth. Any of these memory buckets can be damaged either by traumatic injury, illness, or extreme stress. So what happens when that ability to remember is taken away? If a person can't recall what's happening, where they are, who they are, 
For the small group of people who experience dissociative amnesia, about 1% of men and 2.6% of women worldwide, this is the frightening reality. It places everything we take for granted at risk, like which drawer the silverware is in, or our ability to recognize our spouse or partner. And if you happen to be a celebrity who suffers amnesia, well, it's even more complicated because everyone remembers a very specific version of yourself that you can't. It's possible this was the exact fate of one of the most prolific mystery writers of the 20th century, the architect of all things arcane, Agatha Christie. In 1926, England was experiencing a version of its own Roaring Twenties. Jazz music crooned over the BBC's airwaves, and women could finally vote. Above all, it was a time of increased opportunity. No one knew this better than Agatha Christie. In less than a decade, the mystery writer rose to incredible fame. She'd finally published her long-anticipated novel, The Affair at Styles and secured a contract for five more books. She'd moved to a new home with her husband, Colonel Archibald Christie, and given birth to their daughter, Rosalind. It was a whirlwind of achievements. Agatha and Archie followed it by making a grand tour of the British Empire. Nearly a year of globetrotting afforded them the chance to see Hawaii, New Zealand, and South Africa. Plus a fair amount of surfing and sunburn. Unfortunately, right as Agatha caught her rising star, there was plenty of turmoil threatening to drag it down. After a feud with her first publisher, she switched publishing houses, only to face a daunting deadline for her next manuscript. Her home life was also challenging and heartbreaking. Her mother, Clarissa, had suffered a fatal bout of bronchitis, during which Agatha cared for her without Archie's help. Apparently, the colonel wasn't interested in supporting his wife and stayed in Spain for work during this time. Things only grew more difficult after Clarissa passed. Agatha undertook the immense task of clearing out her mother's belongings from the family home. And then there was Nancy Neal, the colonel's mistress. He'd begun seeing her after becoming acquainted through mutual friends. Once Archie and Nancy were an item, he made little effort to hide his affair. Once Agatha found out, she was crushed, but she wasn't ready to leave him. When Archie asked for a divorce in August of 1926, Agatha refused. She still loved him and didn't want to abandon their marriage, despite his infidelity. It seemed the only bright point for Agatha was her career. From the outside, she was on her way up. In June, she released her novel, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, to near-unanimous acclaim. And yet, this praise did little to mitigate the grief, deadlines, and obligations of motherhood. Agatha seemed restless and trapped. By the time the holidays rolled around in 1926, something boiled over. Usually when Agatha was at home with her daughter, her secretary Charlotte, known as Carlo, was there too. She'd been one of Agatha's closest friends and served as a governess to Rosalind. But Carlo was off work the evening of Friday, December 3rd. So whatever Agatha was feeling that night 
has to be pieced together from the evidence that remains. From what we understand, Agatha and Archie had reached a stalemate in their marriage. He continued to push for a divorce and apparently made plans to spend the upcoming weekend, December 4th and 5th, with his mistress. This seemed to be why Archie didn't return to their home in Sunningdale that evening. Agatha was home alone with Rosalind and the maid. That is, until around 9.45 p.m. when she put on her coat and crept upstairs to kiss Rosalind goodnight. Then she returned downstairs to scratch out a quick note to her secretary with instructions to watch over her daughter. With her satchel in hand, Agatha went out to her Morris Cowley sedan and drove off into the night. No one would hear a peep from her for the next 11 days. By the time dawn broke the next morning, there was no sign of Agatha at the Stiles' house. But her car had been found by Surrey police 13 miles away, perched on a slope that overlooked a quarry. It had seemingly been abandoned. This was alarming enough to make the front page of the New York Times, which also reported the roadster had apparently run into a thick hedge. It was unclear if Agatha intended to drive over it into the quarry. Eerie as it was, the abandoned car didn't give police much sense of where Agatha had gone. Plus, her driver's license and a change of clothing remained inside, including her fur coat. If she planned not to go home, these seemed important to have on hand. The odd, secretive circumstances made it seem like she hadn't just stepped out to visit family or friends. As investigators scurried to get search teams and tip lines in place, rumors quietly began to take root. Perhaps Agatha was unwell, or maybe she'd been kidnapped, or even murdered. The police obviously wanted to question those closest to Agatha, starting with her husband. When they asked Archie if he knew where his wife could have gone, he wasn't sure, but he had a few ideas. He seemed to think Agatha, overcome by stress, was acting out or hiding out. Later, the colonel inspected his closet to see if any of his clothes were missing. After all, it was possible Agatha had borrowed something and gone to London incognito, but nothing seemed out of place at home. As hundreds of police officers and volunteers searched the countryside, updates trickled in. Five days after her disappearance, on December 8th, Agatha's brother-in-law, Campbell Christie, came forward to say she'd written to him. A letter had arrived from her saying she'd gone to rest at a spa in Yorkshire. But local police found this letter a little too convenient. Given Campbell's relationship to Archie, it seemed a bit strange Agatha would disclose her plans to him rather than Carlo or her close friend, Nan Watts. Plus, at this point, Archie claimed he too had found a letter Agatha had left for him, but he refused to share it with investigators. In fact, both brothers purportedly burned these letters, an odd move given the lack of leads in Agatha's disappearance. The authorities had no choice but to expand their search across Surrey, bringing in teams of bloodhounds and air support. By December 11th, as many as 15,000 people were combing the area for any trace of the missing author. 
Given the national frenzy around Agatha's disappearance, her plight even drew other celebrity attention. Some of Britain's most beloved authors joined the search, including detective novelist Dorothy Sayers and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. While their efforts were sincere, they ventured into strange, unconventional territory. Doyle brought one of Agatha's gloves to a medium, hoping this would lead to answers. Sayers, with the help of the detective, Peter Whimsey, had no better luck scouring the areas near Agatha's abandoned car. And as each effort came up short, one possibility stood out from the rest. Her vehicle was found at a place known for death, less than a half a mile from the most haunted lake in Sussex. This suggested, maybe, Agatha died by suicide. Coming up, the search hits a breakthrough. They say time heals all wounds, but sometimes time can do anything but. Welcome to Cold Cases, the new Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Carter Roy. Every Monday, join me as I revisit the clues and miscues of some of the most elusive criminal cases in history. From burglary and arson to kidnappings and murder, each episode of Cold Cases explores the many types of crime, the many ways they remain unsolved, and how long it takes to find the answers, if ever. Will justice be served? Only time will tell. Follow Cold Cases free and only on Spotify. And now, back to the story. In mid-December 1926, a little less than a week into the search for missing novelist Agatha Christie, authorities considered one explanation with growing unease. Given what they knew about her mental health before she disappeared, they feared she might have taken her own life. And the eerie circumstances of her disappearance supported this possibility. Her car was found abandoned near the Silent Pool, a supposedly bottomless lake that was often the center of local legend. Apparently, a woodcutter's daughter drowned herself in the lake centuries before. Yet when those searching for Agatha dragged the Silent Pool, it yielded nothing. Which was frustrating, because every potential lead dried up. Aside from her letters, there was no paper trail. Dogs found no scent of her either. Dragging the lake only seemed to confirm there really was no clear next step in the search, other than to simply wait. By mid-December, England was on the cusp of a startling reality. One of its most talented authors had up and left, and they'd just have to accept the emptiness of her departure. Until Bob Tappan. Bob was an ordinary banjo player with a good eye who was working the evening hotel circuit. About four hours north of Surrey sat the Harrogate Hotel in Yorkshire, otherwise known as the Hydro. Once guests retired from its sprawling lawns and Turkish baths, they often enjoyed the hotel's evening music and dancing. But for banjo player Bob, one guest in particular stood out. A woman in her mid-thirties, alone, but seemingly enjoying herself. 
the maids noticed her too. The woman took great delight in dancing the Charleston, doing the crossword every morning, and even treating other guests to piano performances. But Bob found it especially peculiar that she bore a striking resemblance to the face splashed across newspapers for the past week. He couldn't be certain, but he could have sworn the woman cutting up a rug on the dance floor wasn't Teresa Neal from South Africa, but Agatha Christie. So on December 13th, he called in a tip. He'd found the missing author. A happy reunion wasn't guaranteed, though. When Colonel Archie Christie and the police arrived at the Harrogate the next day, Archie was clearly relieved to have found his wife. But the same couldn't be said for Agatha. As Archie tried to ask what was happening and what had led her to Yorkshire, she simply stared back at him with empty eyes. She gave no indication she even recognized him. After a brief conversation, Agatha agreed to return home with her husband, but she was in no apparent rush. She went upstairs to change into a different dress while Archie waited in the lobby, dumbstruck over his wife's chilly behavior. This nebulous glaze remained over Agatha as the couple returned home. All Archie could deduce was his wife was suffering severe memory loss. She had no idea who he was, who she was, or how she checked into the hydro. He said, quote, she was in an extraordinary position, being in a strange hotel for no purpose that she could think of and with no knowledge of who she was, other than the conviction that Teresa Neal was her real name. Doctors arrived at a similar consensus. Agatha's symptoms seemed consistent with someone suffering from memory loss. Yet somehow, after abandoning her car, Agatha had traveled the hour or so from Guildford to London and then another 200 miles north to the Hydro in Yorkshire, where she checked in under the name Teresa Neal. And for over a week, she moved about the hotel's grounds without any disguise, ultimately leading to her identification. Much of England had spent nearly two weeks scouring the region for their beloved author. So with her safely home, the public eagerly awaited her statement on the incident, an explanation for their worst fears and theories. But they waited in vain. For the rest of her career, Agatha never spoke about her disappearance, save for one interview two years later. This conversation with the Daily Mail, though, spawned more questions than it gave answers. Ultimately, Agatha offered little to comfort her fans. Instead, she returned to her life as she'd left it. This abrupt silence left many curious minds reeling and concocting their own explanations. It seemed incomprehensible that a woman who intimately understood the art of solving a mystery would leave her own story unfinished. As writer Fafix Collington so aptly pointed out, quote, rather than an explanation related to stress and depression, people have wanted to hunt out a grand scheme perpetrated by the queen of crime. Which brings us to our first conspiracy theory. Agatha Christie intentionally disappeared to draw attention to her husband's affair and publicly shame him for his behavior. 
To understand this theory, it helps to shed some light on what Archie and Agatha's marriage was like before she disappeared. And that actually goes much further back than the fall of 1926. In the wake of World War I, England was desperate to pump money and life back into its economy and shore up its relationships with the rest of the world. So, some of Britain's best and brightest were invited to join a planning committee. The idea was they'd help put on a worldly exposition back in London. Among those invited to join were the Christies and a young major's secretary named Nancy Neal. Before long, Nancy and Agatha were working side by side on a children's exhibit for the exposition. But apparently Nancy and Archie began spending time together too, specifically on the golf course. It was a convenient hobby considering Agatha had little interest in the sport. Soon after, Archie and Nancy began an affair that continued into 1926 when Agatha found out. Surprisingly, his wife's knowledge of the affair did little to dissuade Archie from seeing Nancy. He even requested a divorce that summer, which Agatha was reluctant to consider. So, Archie continued seeing Nancy outside of their family home. He was at a friend's house with Nancy for the weekend when Agatha disappeared. But this might have been by design, by Agatha's design. Remember, her car was found abandoned in Guildford, which was about six miles away from where Archie and Nancy were staying. If Agatha wanted to disrupt the affair by going missing nearby, it might kill two birds with one stone. For one, it would certainly take the shine off their romantic weekend, and it did, because the next morning, Archie was called away to be questioned by police and deal with the press. And on a deeper level, it might also expose the fact her husband was cheating on her. For a woman betrayed, this might provide comeuppance for Archie. There seems to be a lot of evidence suggesting Agatha's trip to the Harrogate Hotel in Yorkshire was premeditated. Like she may have been considering leaving for a while. Remember that letter she sent to her brother-in-law? According to the Irish Times, it was postmarked from London. Meaning, if Agatha was the one to mail it, she clearly stopped somewhere before going to the Harrogate Hotel. That travel pattern would make sense because London is on the way north to Yorkshire. And we have information from the family of Nan Watts, one of Agatha's closest friends, that indicates Agatha stayed with Nan the same Friday night she disappeared. Maybe it was Nan who picked Agatha up from her abandoned car. I'm not so sure about Nan Watts. All of the information we have on her comes through the grapevine. Like Agatha, she refused to discuss the incident publicly, so we're getting these details second and third hand from her daughter's account to a biographer. While some of it could be true, or even most of it, we can't be certain. That's valid, but we can look back to what evidence we do clearly have, which is that Agatha checked into the Harrogate as Ms. Teresa Neal, as in Nancy Neal, down to the exact spelling. It seems oddly coincidental. Of all the names she could have chosen, Agatha selected that of her husband's mistress. 
Plus, at some point while she was at the Harrogate, Agatha posted an ad in the London Times under the name Teresa Neal, asking for her relatives to contact her. Knowing how hostile Agatha and Archie's marriage was, I'm inclined to think that wasn't the act of a confused woman reaching out for help. It seems more like a vindictive jab. That's true. I agree it would be extremely bizarre for Agatha to cling to such a specific, painful detail like Nancy's last name, especially if she was suffering from amnesia. But this theory gives me pause because of her motive. Even though she was deeply hurt by Archie's affair, Agatha didn't want a divorce. I think staging a hoax of this size and consequence, thousands of people were out looking for her, would have undermined her goals. Maybe Archie would have been humiliated, but I don't think he would have been compelled to reconcile with Agatha. If anything, he'd be more resentful and more hostile. Plus, after Agatha's disappearance, the two still divorced, and Archie later married Nancy without much public backlash. In the end, I don't think Agatha would disappear just to humiliate her husband. She had a lot on the line, from her book deal, to her reputation, to the respect of her fans, and that's a lot to risk for spite. For me, on a scale of 1 to 10, this theory is a 5. You're right. Maybe Agatha wouldn't disappear just to focus the attention on her fraying marriage. But it's possible this was her way of ending things on her own terms. We don't know what their conversations were like before she disappeared, but we do know Archie was still pushing for a divorce, so it's possible she'd reached her breaking point and was ready for the marriage to be done. If Agatha had realized divorce was inevitable, perhaps this was her way of getting the last word in front of the world. For me, this theory is a seven. It seems clear whatever pushed Agatha to up and leave in the dead of night was complicated. So much so, it might have been completely out of her control. Perhaps, England's master of sleuth stories lost her memory due to a rare condition known as dissociative fugue. Coming up, a curious case of psychological distress. And now back to the story. For many observers, Agatha Christie's sudden disappearance and refusal to discuss the incident afterwards didn't quite add up. Despite many inquiries from the press, the author declined to meaningfully discuss what drove her to flee, let alone what she was feeling at the time. Which brings us to our second and final conspiracy theory. Agatha Christie experienced severe stress-induced amnesia known as dissociative fugue, which caused her to disappear and not recognize herself for 11 days. For a long time, dissociative fugue wasn't widely understood. Throughout the 19th and into the mid-20th century, a lot of memory loss was generally lumped under amnesia. But amnesia means very different things depending on the circumstances. Among the variants are post-traumatic, transient global, and dissociative. 
Post-traumatic amnesia often follows a severe head injury, and transient global amnesia is when a person is temporarily unable to remember memories from the past or to store new information. However, dissociative amnesia is a little different because it causes a person to forget specific traumatic information. This can include both the trauma itself and personal memories, like who you are and who you know. As psychiatrist Neil Burton, MD, explained, quote, in dissociative fugue, a traumatic event may prompt a person to embark on an unexpected journey that may last for up to several months. During this journey, there is memory loss and confusion about personal identity or assumption of another identity. Once the fugue ends, the memory of the journey is lost. To understand how this happens today, we can look at the cases of two people who've experienced fugue firsthand, Jeff Ingram and Naomi Jacobs. Let's start with Jeff Ingram, a Washington man who has experienced attacks of fugue multiple times, each of which wiped his memory completely clean. His wife, Penny, recalled the first attack he experienced while they were together back in 2006. One day, Jeff left to go to work and never came home. He ended up hundreds of miles away in Denver, Colorado, unable to remember who he was or why he was there. After he went on local news asking for help, Penny was able to identify him and help get Jeff home. However, even after returning to his normal life and routines, all of Jeff's memories from before that incident failed to return. When it happened again the next year, Jeff was luckily closer to home, though his recollections were again permanently wiped. There's also Naomi Jacobs, an Australian woman who woke up one morning at 32 years old, completely unable to remember the past 17 years. It was a surreal and frightening moment for Jacobs because even though she could still do ingrained tasks, like drive a car and dial certain phone numbers, she couldn't remember major world events or that she had an 11-year-old son. Slowly, over the course of two months, by rereading her old diaries and talking with family, friends, and doctors, Jacobs began to recall old memories, including pieces of her adult life she'd feared might be gone forever like the birth of her son and conversations with her sister. Eventually, she was diagnosed with a combination of dissociative fugue and transient global amnesia. As Naomi processed her injury, she found some crucial insight from an unlikely source. By reading her old journals, she saw she'd been incredibly stressed and worried before the incident. She'd been dealing with a bipolar diagnosis and often relied on drugs and alcohol to cope. Now, plenty of people struggle with addiction without fugue. And conversely, there are people with fugue who've never experienced addiction. What's crucial in Naomi's case was the psychological distress that can accompany chemical dependence. It was a time of great struggle that she was only able to fully comprehend in hindsight. And her emotional trauma doesn't sound so far off from Agatha Christie's own journey. Personally, it seems extremely possible Agatha experienced dissociative fugue, given the amount of stress in her life. 
Her mother, Clarissa, had died earlier that year, leaving Agatha to clean out the family house while still grieving and caring for her daughter. And we know Archie was openly having an affair. I can only imagine the hurt and betrayal Agatha felt, especially as her husband made it clear he'd rather spend time with Nancy than his family. Plus, if we walk through the stages of dissociative fugue and compare them to Agatha's behavior, it seems like a lot of them line up. For instance, when someone is in a state of fugue, they can have confusion about their identity and appear unsure about their past. Agatha couldn't recognize herself in the papers, nor could she explain how she decided to take the name of Teresa Neal and ended up in Yorkshire. That's true, though we do have to consider the possibility Agatha could have been faking it. I'm not so sure about that. Many experts agree faking dissociative few can be a lot harder than it seems. The average person has no idea what symptoms they should or shouldn't show. One slip-up could blow their entire cover. But let's not forget, Agatha wasn't average. She wrote extensively about characters who played mind games and could likely mirror that in her own behavior. That's true. And if she was faking her mental state, she did an excellent job of selecting a condition that wouldn't draw unwanted attention. Experts have argued dissociative fugue is extremely hard to spot. It can take psychiatrists and clinicians weeks to properly identify. Exactly. People noticed Agatha at the Harrogate Hotel because she was a missing, famous person. If she'd been anyone else, I'm not so sure onlookers would have suspected there was anything wrong with her. As we mentioned earlier, the hotel staff thought she was enjoying herself. If she couldn't remember all the heartbreak of the past year, maybe she truly was having a good time. I do see your point, though, at least as far as the inconsistencies with Agatha's memory go. When Archie came to pick her up, she didn't recognize him at all. But later on, once she'd returned home and settled, she remembered who she was and that he was her husband. That's true. Unlike Jeff Ingram, whose memory was wiped clean each time he experienced fugue, Agatha appeared to regain her old memories and understand she disappeared. She just chose not to speak about it. Except for one time. She had an interview in 1928 with the Daily Mail, where she laid things as bare as they would ever be. Agatha said, quote, I left home that night in a state of high nervous strain with the intention of doing something desperate. I drove in my car over the crest of the downs in the direction of a quarry. The car struck something, and I was flung against the steering wheel and injured my chest in my head. I was dazed by the blow and lost my memory. Then, she explained how she got to the hotel in Yorkshire, saying, For 24 hours I wandered in a dream, and then found myself in Harrogate, a well-contented and perfectly happy woman who believed she had just come from South Africa. Ultimately, Agatha attributed the incident to a head injury and the grief of losing her mother earlier that year. While we'll never know if Agatha truly did suffer a physical head injury, it's clear there was a lot of turbulence in her life, 
so it's definitely possible she was in a dark place and considered attempting suicide. The way her car was found perched over the quarry could suggest she tried to drive into the water. Plus, the idea she experienced psychological trauma is consistent with reporting done by Scientific American. It points out there's a clear difference in how memory is affected when the cause is neurological versus stress-induced. While neurological memory loss tends to affect the ability to retain new memories or information, psychological trauma often means a person can function in the present but struggle to recall their past, just like Agatha at the Harrogate Hotel. We also know biographer Andrew Norman's assessment echoed this too. He believed depression and stress caused her dissociative fugue. Norman was even convinced Agatha reflected on this later in her novel, Unfinished Portrait, through the character of Celia. In the largely autobiographical story, Celia considers suicide while she's in the process of divorcing her husband. So for Agatha, Perhaps writing was her way to process this immensely difficult time. For me, this theory is an 8 out of 10. Agatha probably experienced some kind of dissociative amnesia caused by emotional trauma. I agree with a few caveats. Many of Agatha's symptoms are in line with how doctors diagnose fugue today, though I'm still a little skeptical of the part where she wasn't able to identify herself in the newspapers. As the Irish Times pointed out, a detail that large, seeing your own pictures staring back at you, is often substantial enough to jog someone's memory, even while they're experiencing amnesia. That said, I think it's likely there was some psychological trauma impacting Agatha's memory, whether from grief, her husband's affair, or a combination of both. I'll give this theory a seven. The curious disappearance of Agatha Christie remains just that, curious. It was a strange intermission that punctuated the life of a remarkable writer. In the months after the incident, Agatha and Archie Christie quietly divorced. She took a brief sabbatical to the Canary Islands with their daughter, Rosalind, where she returned to writing. It seemed like all Agatha wanted was to create space from that difficult chapter of her life. And yet, perhaps those more reflective months prepared her for what was on the horizon. Just two years later, in 1928, Agatha traveled on the famed Orient Express train route and eventually met her second husband. Reinvigorated, she'd go on to write the most successful books of her career, from Murder on the Orient Express to And Then There Were None. Her novels and plays were eventually adapted for the screen, and many came to dub her the Queen of Crime. Whatever the reason for her disappearance, it certainly wasn't Agatha's last act. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll be back next time with a new episode. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from Parcast. 
Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Mackenzie Moore, edited by Andrew Messer and Angela Jorgensen, fact-checked by Haley Milliken, researched by Bradley Klein, and produced by Bruce Katovich. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Hi, I'm Carter Roy, host of the Spotify original from ParCast, Cold Cases. From burglary and arson to kidnappings and murder, explore the many types of crime, the many ways they remain unsolved, and how long it takes to find the answers, if ever. Catch a new episode of Cold Cases every Monday. Listen free, only on Spotify.